Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. A couple of years ago, we had a pattern in our home that at about midnight or 1 a.m., our doorbell would ring. And I would get up and I would go check the door and nobody would be there. Pretty soon we figured it out. This was a teenage kid down the street who was playing that great game called Ding Dong Ditch. Uh, Needless to say, I'm not a big fan. And I was thinking about that as I was preparing this week on this message on prayer as Michelle talked about. And I realized that my prayer life is a lot like Ding Dong Ditch sometimes. I come to God in prayer and I knock, I ask him for something, and then if God doesn't answer right away, I figure, well, it must not be that important or he may be a little bit too busy to get to it, and so I leave it alone. It's the ding-dong ditch prayer. Can any of you relate to that one? This morning, as we continue our series called The Life of Christ, we come to a section in Luke's gospel where we are basically taught the complete opposite of the ding-dong ditch prayer. Jesus teaches his disciples about persistent prayer. Now, if you haven't been with us in this series, we've been saying this. We want to spend time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. And if you've ever read the Gospels, you know one thing about Jesus is sure, he prayed. He understood and knew the value of persistent prayer, not just ding-dong ditch praying. And so this morning, he gathers his disciples in the text we're going to look at, and he teaches them in a parable about persistent prayer. Now, I know this is going to come as a shock to you, but I actually think this parable has sometimes been misinterpreted. I say that as a joke because I feel like I've said that the last three parables I've taught on here. The reason I think it's been misunderstood is twofold. First of all, just like a lot of parables sometimes happen to, this parable has been wrenched out of its context, If you were here a couple of weeks ago, and even if you weren't, I just talked about how important it is anytime we read a passage of Scripture, whether on your own or as a church family, that we understand the context from which that passage is taken. And this morning, that is a lesson that definitely holds true. As we're going to see, when this parable is placed in its proper context, the meaning of it is going to become much more clear, much more specific, and much more powerful. And in fact, I just want to give it away a little bit this morning. This parable has been taught sometimes that this is just about prayer in general. But actually, it's much more specific than that. There is a deeper purpose and reason behind this prayer. Now, a second reason this parable has been misunderstood is because of the wrong translation of a word that has caused some confusion. So we're going to address both of those, context and definition of a word. Hopefully, when we do that, we'll get to the heart of what Jesus really wants us to understand about prayer together. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to grab your Bible, turn it to Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we say this every week. We have some Bibles available for you somewhere in a seat near you. You can grab that. You can find that on page 731. If you don't own your own Bible, take that home with you as our gift to you, we would love for you to have that. Now, since we're talking about prayer, I thought it might be wise for us to spend some time in prayer before we open up Jesus' words. So would you bow your head with me? Lord, we believe the stakes are high. We're just not coming to check off a box that we went to church today. We're coming to be fed. We're coming to learn. We're coming to grow. 
And so as we pray often here, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, but even beyond that, that you would give us lives that respond. Let us not just be hearers of the word today, but doers as well. For your sake, for your name, amen. Well, let's start this morning by reading verse 1 out loud together there. I have it printed on your notes. Would you do that? It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, let me just stop here for a minute. That verse is a preacher's worst nightmare. Luke ruins the entire parable for me. Like, what is the point of me studying every week and praying and looking at a text if Luke is going to go ahead and tell us right away what this whole parable is about? Now, I'm joking a little bit here. I'm glad Luke makes it clear because this story has and can be misinterpreted to mean something Jesus never intended. In fact, even as I'm saying this, I'm conscious of the fact. Maybe some of us read this verse and we assume we know exactly what Luke means here. But do we? It seems simple enough. Do you read that and think, well, this is about not giving up in prayer, right? Well, yes and no. You see, the key is understand, to understanding the parable's purpose depends on how we understand those last two words of verse 1, give up. That is actually only one word in Greek, and I don't know about you, but every time I've read this passage in the past, here's what I've taken this to mean, that I should always pray and not give up praying. But is that what Jesus is actually talking about here? Well, no. How I know that is two things. First, the context. Second, that word, I'm going to look at it really deeply here and say, where else do we see this word in the Bible so that we can compare it? Some of you have Bibles that have cross-references. Those are great. Because anytime I come to a word, I go, oh, I'm not sure exactly what that means. There's some other verses, and I go to look at those, and the Scripture can help me interpret Scripture. So we're going to do both those things. Let's remember the context. If you were here last week, the context of this parable is that it immediately follows the discourse from Luke chapter 17 that Jesus gives about the coming of the kingdom of God. If you were here last week, Pastor Jeff did a terrific job unpacking Jesus' words to his disciples about the kingdom, didn't he? He talked about how the kingdom is right here, right now in our midst, and yet it is also not yet. It hasn't come yet. The Son of Man, Jesus, is going to return again and take up his kingdom in all of its fullness. Therefore, Jesus is teaching his disciples about living in the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. And as we saw, part of what that means, and you experience this, I imagine, if you're a Christian, is that you're going to face some hardships. You're going to face some trials. You're going to face some persecution in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Jesus warns about this all throughout the Gospels, but we saw it specifically last week in Luke 17 and Luke 21. And I just want to say to you, this parable cannot be separated from that context. In fact, I was sitting here last Sunday listening to Jeff in my usual spot because we all sit in the same spot every week, don't we? And I was struck by this verse in Luke 21, 19 that we read last week where Jesus said these words, stand firm. Why is he telling us this? Because times are going to get tough. Until the kingdom comes in all its fullness, stand firm and you will win life. And I was sitting there thinking, well, how? How do I make sure I stand firm and win life in the now and the not yet of the kingdom? Well, that's exactly what this parable is all about. 
This parable is about how we persist in our faith even when times get tough and times are going to get tough in these last days. So the correct context of this parable can now lead to a correct understanding of that word give up. Upon careful study, the word in Greek is not describing giving up about praying. It's describing don't give up your faith. A better way to say it might be don't lose heart. In the now and the not yet of the kingdom, when things get rough, when things get tough, when trials come and persecution comes, always pray so that you may not give up, so that you may stand firm and win life, as Jesus said. Now, how do I know that's what that is? Well, I looked at a couple other examples when it's used in the New Testament. You can do this too. One of them is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, when Paul writes, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not, there's the word, lose heart. We don't lose heart. Or how about this one in Galatians 6, 9? Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if, what? We do not give up. If we stand firm. If we stand firm and win life, there's other examples, but I just want to say again, the idea here is not give up praying. It's much bigger than that. The idea is don't give up our faith. I like how one scholar put it. The context for this exhortation is the danger that Christians might become disheartened in the midst of affliction. Can that ever happen? Before the return of the Son of Man to deliver them. It applies to the generation of Jesus' disciples who will endure tribulations because of their faith and to all Christians who must enter the reign of God through many persecutions. This then is a parable about not giving up our faith, even when times get tough. A good modern example of this was this last Super Bowl, as much as it pains me to say it. Down 28 to 3, the New England Patriots never lost heart. They never gave up, and as a result, they went home with their fifth Super Bowl trophy. Now, why am I spending so much time making sure we understand that? Because what people have done with this parable and a similar parable in Luke chapter 11 is they've taken it to mean that I just can't give up praying, and if I pester God long enough, if I'm persistent in praying, I don't know what the magic number is. Maybe it's a hundred, maybe it's a thousand, maybe it's a million, but eventually I will wear God down and he will hear my prayer and he will answer my prayer. But I'm convinced, friends, this is much more than just about prayer there. It's not about pestering God for what we want as we're gonna see. This parable is all about viewing prayer as the primary weapon we have as disciples in order to stand firm in our faith and win life. The stakes are so much higher if you're following the parable shows how to stand firm in our faith until the end. How to stand firm in our faith until the end. So let's look at the parable. Finally, you're thinking. Verse 2, Jesus said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. 
As he does often in his parables, Jesus takes a scene from ordinary life. You have a widow and a judge, and he applies it to something much deeper. The widow was one of those special categories of people we see all throughout Scripture who God has special concern for. Same with the foreigners, same with the orphans, right? Sadly, though, often widows in this time were the victims of oppression or legal abuse, which is the case for this woman. She wasn't seeking revenge. She just wanted some form of justice. For what? We don't know exactly, but the way to get justice in this society was to go to a judge. Now, I hope when you picture this scene, you're not picturing a courtroom like we have today. They didn't have those things. They actually had tents. And they would move these tents all around, and the judge would make his circuit around the area that he was supposed to cover. And the idea behind this parable is that this persistent widow keeps following this tent everywhere it's placed. Now, she wouldn't have been allowed to go inside of the tent. If you were allowed to go inside the tent, that meant your case was going to be heard. The way to get your case heard was to give the assistant a bribe. But as you know, a widow of this stature, she wouldn't have the money in order to do that. And so she stood at the outside of the tent. Anybody was allowed to do this. And the picture here is just, she just pestered this judge. She followed him around everywhere that he went. She was persistent in her pursuit of justice. I love some of the nuances of the language Jesus uses here. Look at the end of verse 5 when it says, wear me out. Do you, you see him say that? Literally, that means blacken my eye, which is like a boxing expression that was used in that day. The judge is basically saying, I'm tired of being a punching bag to this woman's constant pestering and begging. She's wearing me down. And the idea is she's not just following him where the tent goes. She's following him home. She's following him to the marketplace. She's following him wherever he goes, begging, pestering, persistently asking that he hear her case until he can't stand it anymore. Like a boxer hitting the canvas, he caves in and gives her the justice she is seeking. Now, don't miss this. As a judge in this society, this guy didn't get it. This was exactly the kind of person that he should be helping. But this judge is the antithesis of what a judge in Israel was ideally supposed to do. In fact, when Jehoshaphat appointed judges in Second Chronicles, and anytime you can say Jehoshaphat in a message, it's a win, right? When he appointed judges in 2 Chronicles, I want you to read carefully what he says to these judges. He told them, consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for mere mortals, but for the Lord who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Well, wait a minute. This judge was all three of those things. He was unjust, and he showed partiality, and he took bribes. He neither feared God nor feared man. The person he should have been caring for was the one who was a pester to him until her pestering finally pays off. Of course, just like any parable, uh, the question at this point becomes like, what does this have to do with us, right? What does Jesus want us to understand here? And this is another place where people have misinterpreted this parable. People go, oh, I get it. I get it. This is a parable. This is an allegory. And my wheels start turning. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm like the widow. I'm like the widow. Penniless, powerless, no status, no connections. I'm facing problems in my life that I can't handle on my own. 
And so I got to go to someone else for help. Yep, it fits. I'm just like this widow. And of course, God is like the judge. I mean, he's busy doing other things. He's got a universe to run. He's got angels to keep in harmony and harps to tune. All those kinds of things. Besides, there's like millions of people, right now probably even, coming to God in prayer. My concern possibly can't be heard by him. Now, if I'm desperate, what I'm learning here in this parable is is I just got to do what this widow does. I just got to pester him and bug him and bang on his door. I better get on my knees and get real intense. And sooner or later, I'll be able to wrench a blessing from the tight-fisted hand of God. Sooner or later, God is going to shout, I can't take it anymore. Somebody fix this problem already. So the moral of this story is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Of course, that is not the point of this parable at all. If you're following on your notes there, this is a parable of contrast. It's a parable of opposites. Number one, the first contrast is that we are not like the powerless widow. We don't need to pester God to get his attention. It's actually the opposite. I sometimes talk with people, still today, who are convinced that prayer is like this secret. It's like this key that they need to learn in order to unlock some sort of blessing that God wants to give them, right? There's this big mystery, if I could just say the right thing or learn the right technique or, or, or come to him enough, then, then he might hear my prayer and answer it. It reminds me, I read this week of a guy who tried to call the president. This was several presidents ago. And he went through eight different security checks before finally somebody said, you're not important enough to talk to the president. And they hung up on him. Sometimes we think, yeah, that's how it is, right? I've got to go through all these hoops. I've got to learn all these techniques in order for God to finally hear my prayer. Every once in a while, I make the mistake of looking at the religion section in bookstores. Can I tell you, my, just, my heart just drops sometimes. Broken at the titles of some of these books. Like, here are the seven keys to unlocking God's answers to prayers. Here's the secret. That's not how the Christian faith works at all. Don't ever see yourself this way. Don't ever see God this way. You see, this is a parable of opposites. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are not like the widow. This widow was poor, powerless, forgotten, abandoned, had no relationship with the judge. To him, she's just a face, just a problem to be dealt with. Jesus is saying, you're totally unlike that widow. You are God's sons and daughters. You are his children, and you matter immensely to him. And friends, it's just because we are not like her that we can be encouraged to pray. That we can know that every time we go to him in prayer, we're not jumping through hoops. We're not bugging him. We're not pestering him. He is waiting for us. If you're following on your notes there, the point then is we can always approach God as his children. There's no barrier. I I don't have like a secret number if my kids need to get a hold of me in an emergency. To reach your dad, press one, two, six, nine. No. If they need me, I'm there for them. If they call and something's wrong, I drop everything else I'm doing and I help my kids. That's how our father is. If you need him, he's there. You don't have to follow around his tent. 
all over the circuit. He invites you in anytime, anywhere. I love how Warren Wearsby describes it. Look, listen to what he says, and I know this is a long quote, but hang in there because I think it's worth it. Consider the contrast in this parable. To begin with, the woman was a stranger, but we are the children of God, and God cares for his children, Luke eleven thirteen. The widow had no access to the judge, but God's children have open access into his presence and may come at any time they need to get help. Ephesians 2.18, Hebrews 4.14-16. The woman had no friend at court to help her get her case on the docket. All she could do was walk around outside the tent and make a nuisance of herself as she shouted at the judge. But when Christian believers pray, they have in heaven a Savior who is an advocate, 1 John 2, 1, and a high priest, Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, who constantly represents them before the throne of God. Did you know he's praying for you even now? When we pray, we can open up the word and claim the many promises of God, but the widow had no promises that she could claim as she tried to convince the judge to hear her case. And we not only have God's unfailing promises, but we also have the Holy Spirit who assists us in our praying, Romans 8, 26 through 27. But perhaps the greatest contrast is that the widow came to a court of law. But God's children, we come to a throne of grace, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We've said it many, many times here. Hear it again. Prayer is simply your father's invitation into a relationship with him. It's an invitation that he extends as the father, the perfect father, for a relationship with you. I'll say it this way, like with my kids, no one's voice sounds sweeter to God than your voice. Can you let that one sit in there a little bit? Do you believe that? No one's voice sounds sweeter to God than your voice. We're not like the widow. We are God's children. And because we're his children, he loves when we come to him in prayer. That leads to the second contrast. I don't know if I even need to say it, right? God is not like the annoyed judge. That's not what we should get from this parable. The judge in this story is crooked, unrighteous, unfair, disrespectful, uncaring, and preoccupied with personal matters. Is that the God you know? Our God is righteous and just and holy and tender and compassionate and sympathetic. There is no secret trick that you have to learn in order to wrench a blessing from the closed hand of a tight-fisted God. That is much more the idea of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 when they're on Mount Carmel and they're performing all kinds of gymnastics in order to get their God's attention. They're cutting themselves, they're dancing, they're yelling, they're shouting. If one of my children were ever to call me and say, Dad, Dad, please, 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 I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, please listen, 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 I'd be like, whoa, back up here. When did you ever think you needed to go through these gymnastics just to have a conversation with me? I don't like where this is going. You can come to me at any time and know that I will listen and I will hear you. And if you're following, God wants to hear our prayers because he loves us as Father. I am an imperfect father. He is a perfect father. And he wants to hear your prayers because he loves you. Obviously, I hope it goes without saying, that doesn't mean he's going to give you everything you always ask. That's why I want to be clear that this parable is not as some have taught, that if I just pester God long enough with my prayer request, eventually I'll wear him down. 
and he'll give me exactly what I want. He wouldn't be a very wise or loving father if he did that, would he? Like if I gave everything that my kids pestered me for, would you think I was a good dad? No, I'd be in prison at this point. Sometimes, even if the answer to our prayer is no, then we simply go, okay, I trust. I trust you are my father and you have what is best in mind for me, just as I hope that our kids trust their mother and me. That even when we have to say no, our intentions for them are best. But we should keep coming. We should keep praying. We should keep seeking. We should keep knocking. I knew I was going to be preaching on this text several months ago. And so we were thinking on staff, we have a team that puts together some of the services. We're like, you know who we should call? We should call Nate Brewer. Nate Brewer is a missionary we support in Vienna, Austria. And if there's somebody who represents, for me at least, I know there's people sitting in this room who represent this as well, but Nate Brewer believes in prayer. He understands the importance of prayer. And so Pastor Brian called him, and I hope you're encouraged by this conversation they were able to have. Hey, Nathan, thanks for being with us here today. We, we've talked a lot about this. You do ministry in Vienna, Austria, and I love what you've said before. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the entire world, but under this beautiful facade, um, it's, a, it's a dark place with a lot of spiritual darkness and spiritual oppression. Um, and it's a hard place to do ministry. And we've talked a little bit before about how important prayer is in your life and in that ministry context, but I was wondering if you could just speak into that a little bit more this morning. Sure, hi, Chair Hales, thanks for having me. And I appreciate the question, Brian. Um, Prayer is essential. Um, I think it's kind of like breath. Uh, Just physically, we need to breathe. Um, Spiritually, we need to breathe as well. And that's uh, for me is prayer. I think ministry context is hard anywhere around the world, uh, including Springfield, Illinois is challenging. Um, Their challenges may look different, but as you mentioned, yeah, I would say there is definitely a, a stronghold of of different darkness or dark spirits here and um, prayer is uh, essential for for that spiritual warfare Um, so for me um, it starts with really carving out time uh, to pray and protecting that time in the mornings uh, kind of doing battle on on my knees I'm not always physically on my knees but um, doing battle in the spiritual realms through prayer and intercession Um, And I do that partly because I have to, to kind of survive in ministry, but also because I want to. It's a time of sweet fellowship with the Father and um, just getting filled up with his peace, with his love, and also with his kind of his guidance or his marching orders for the day. Steve has talked today about persistent prayer and, and how we, we we keep asking and keep knocking. And could you give us a couple of examples of how persistent prayer has led to breakthrough in your life or ministry? Sure. Um, two quick stories come to mind. One is um, I'm working together with a, a team of uh, ministry people, and uh, we wanted to gather together for a leaders' summit here recently. And um, in our day and age, time is a limiting factor. Uh, very difficult to get people uh, to a specific place in a specific time. And um, I just sensed in my heart this was extremely important for, for the Lord that he wanted to bring us all together. 
and that would mean people flying uh, down from England or over from Los Angeles and Salzburg and other a lot of places to convene in, in Lower Austria. And uh, it was looking impossible, but um, God just said, just continue to press in prayer and, and uh, have faith. And I use that faith as a catalyst uh, to shift schedules, to make it financially possible. And um, just this beginning of January, a few weeks ago, um, the 10 of us came together and that alone was a miracle of prayer, I believe. Secondly, um, prayer for a man named Glenn, uh, just real persistent prayer. This is a gentleman who's middle-aged, half German, half American. He started coming to our Starbucks Fellowship Bible study um, several years ago um, as a, as a self-described atheist. And we just sensed uh, the Lord was getting a hold of him, and um, we began to pray, uh, not just myself, but many in the group praying for his salvation. And that was about persistent prayer for two-year period or so. And then we saw him come to faith. He had an encounter with God and really an authentic repentance. And, and now it's fun to see him to see him grow. Amen. One final question for you, Nathan. What what does it do to you or what do you do? How do you respond when you persist in prayer and it isn't answered the way that you were hoping it would be answered? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a, is that a trick question? <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, how to respond when I don't receive an answer? I think, um, varied, um, just thinking personally, sometimes I get uh, wearied. Sometimes I stop praying for a while, just to be honest, because I'm weary and I just kind of put it on the shelf for a mm-hmm. while. And then maybe two months later, five months later, I'll pull that prayer off the shelf again and start engaging. Um, but there is something, I guess, supernatural that happens uh, when we're waiting on the Lord and when it doesn't um, get answered, but we keep pressing in and um, he does a lot of spiritual formation inside of us during those times, even when we don't see quote unquote results. Yeah. Well, thanks, Nate. I so appreciate you talking to us this morning about how important prayer is and where you've seen breakthrough in your life and, and also there at the end where it doesn't always happen. Yeah. Yeah. So much good stuff there, but I hope uh, one thing you take away from that is really the first thing he said, that prayer is essential. It's like breath. And I think if Jesus is trying to communicate something in this parable, that's exactly it. It's why he finishes the way he does, starting in verse 6. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice. And quickly, that verb, bring about justice, it's referring once again to this idea that as Christians, we are going to face struggles. We are going to face opposition. We are going to face trials and persecution. But as we saw last week, there is a day coming when the Son of Man will be revealed from heaven in all of his glory and he will bring justice to this world once and for all. Though in between that time, the times may get tough, he will make all things new. And so what do we do? What do we do in the meantime? How do we not give up? How do we not lose heart? How do we stand firm and win the faith as we seek, as we live in this adversity? Well, 
That's really the whole point of this story. The whole point of this parable, if you're following on your notes, persistent prayer produces persistent faith. Persistent prayer produces persistent faith. Listen, it's as simple as that. You want to learn how to stand firm till the end? You want to learn how to win life? Then understand exactly what prayer is. Just how important it is. It's like breath for the Christian. It is essential. I think that is why Jesus ends the way he does in verse 8 with this kind of confusing question. Again, if we were reading this out of its context, I might go look at this verse and go, what is he talking about here? Would you read it out loud on your notes there? It says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, now that we understand the context, I know exactly what he's talking about. When he returns, are he gonna, is he going to find people who are standing firm in their faith with the resource that he's given us in prayer? Is he going to find people who understand that prayer is essential? I love reading and telling stories of persistence and how prayer has paid off. I like the examples Nate gave. I think of someone like William Wilberforce, who many of you know, year after year submitted the same bill for the abolition of the slave trade. Finally, his prayers and his hard work was answered. Or I think of George Mueller, who paid for, prayed for 52 years for five of his friends to come and know Christ. 52 years, and he actually died before one of them did. And I find those stories inspiring, but can I just be honest with you? I don't always connect those stories to my personal faith life in Christ. I look at those stories and go, oh, that's praying for something grander and for something bigger. And the message of this parable is, no, 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 no. You should be having that same kind of persistence in prayer for your walk with Christ every day. You should have that kind of persistence for your kids, for your spouse, for your loved ones, for the church, for others. We need to see prayer as our very breath, as our very life. I have the mistake of making where I think about people who are facing persecution. I go, well, of course prayer is a resource for them. They need it. I'm okay, though. I'm not facing any physical persecution for my faith in Christ, at least not yet. I'm not. But here's what I've been thinking about this week. I don't want to get too off topic, but is the idea that I'm not up against it, that we're not up against it, the greatest lie that Satan has gotten us to believe as American Christians. We often forget, I know I do, that my battle is not against flesh and blood. My battle is against authorities and powers and spiritual forces that I can't even see. I think that because I'm not being physically persecuted, I can handle this faith thing on my own. You answer the prayers of those people who are being physically persecuted, God. I'm not really facing that much adversity, but what if I am? Every day. What if we're at war every single day in our faith lives? What if there's someone who does not want us to stand firm and win life? I think about our current culture right now. It's getting harder and harder to be a biblical-believing Christian, yeah? We walk out of these doors and we're bombarded with truths that aren't biblical. And so I go, what do I do with this? How do I stand firm and win life in the face of this? Well, pray. I think about every time I turn on the TV that there is a power at war with my soul called consumerism. 
I'm not saying that as a joke. It's there. It's real. It's constantly bombarding us. So how do I stand firm up against that? How do I keep my love aligned on what matters most? Well, prayer. I think about all the idols everywhere I look that are vying for my attention, that are vying for my love. How do I stand firm and win life in this world? Are you getting the picture? Prayer is just as essential for us as it is for those who are being physically persecuted for their faith in Christ. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the kind of spiritual armor we need in order to stand firm in this life. Some of you know that famous passage. He talks about how we need the word and we need faith and all these things. And then he closes it out with this interesting verse in Ephesians 6, 18. It's sort of like, and all those things are important, but surrounding all of them, read this verse out loud with me. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Be alert. Keep on praying. Why? Because that's the only way we will stand firm and win life. If you're falling on your notes, if you get nothing else this morning, I hope you understand. Prayer is the primary resource the primary resource God has given to help us live victoriously in the now and not yet of the kingdom. Whatever we are facing, whether physical persecution or forces we cannot see, Paul says, be alert. Don't fall asleep. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So as we close, let me ask you to make this personal. If you're on your notes, am I persistently praying that I might stand firm in my faith. And maybe we need to get rid of the word my, not just my, but am I praying for my spouse? Am I praying for my kids? Am I praying for my neighbors? Am I praying for my life group that they might persistently stand firm in their faith? How much do you seek your father in order to win the race he has set before you? Oh, friends, may it not be said when he returns that he did not find faith on earth. Amen? Well, it is 11.53, and I know some of you are thinking, oh, good, I can get to Cracker Barrel even earlier. (laughs) But we just thought, you can't have a message about prayer without actually spending some significant time in prayer. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to actually pray together as a church. I believe something happens when I pray as an individual, but something powerful happens when we gather together as a church family. And communally, we lift our voices, our prayers up to the throne of God. And so here's what we've done. We've asked three individuals in our church to lead us in a time of guided prayer. The burden that was on my heart this week was I wanted to be praying for some specific groups of people who are under it, who are up against it, who are needing us to pray for them to be able to stand firm and win life. And so each of these has taken one of those three groups of people. We're going to be praying for our missionaries and some of our mission organizations. We're going to be praying for our youth. And we're going to be praying for the church with a capital C. And so here's what's going to happen. We're going to sing a song together to lead into this time. Please remember, every time we sing, it's just another form of prayer. And then one of these individuals is going to come. They're going to speak their prayer, share their heart, and then we'll have a minute of silence. And my encouragement to you is to take that minute and to offer up your own prayers to God. 
If you need to take a different posture than just sitting, we hope you know this is an open place for that. If you'd like to come down front and kneel, if you want to kneel at the place you are, if you want to stand, you have freedom to do those things. My hope, again, is that when you come here on Sunday, you don't view yourself simply as an observer. You are participating. You are participating in what God is doing in this church. And so we're going to participate together now in an extended time of prayer. So let me pray before we sing. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we want to be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people, not just today, but every day. Let us be people who pray persistently for persistent faith until you return. We give you this time now, oh Lord, hear our prayers. Would you bow your heads with me as we humble our hearts and lift our, our, our hearts to the Lord. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your guidance in our lives as we look to you. This morning I want to hold before you the missionaries that our church has sent out and that we support. We want to intercede for them now. I ask that your Holy Spirit teach us how to pray for them. As each of us knows different missionaries or organizations that minister your word, into our hearts prayers for their needs. And Lord, we don't only pray for them this morning, but that you would prod us each day to remember them in prayer. And just as we pray for them to finish strong, so also, Lord, that we should also pray for ourselves to hold them before you every day. Lord, I ask that you would call some of our own people to be missionaries, pastors, Bible teachers, endow them with the gifts needed for their ministry. Lord, I can't forget to hold before you the persecuted church, those believers who are in prison because of their faith in Jesus. Help them to stand firm that they may win life. Finally, Lord, we pray over our, our missionaries in the persecuted church, what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So, so let's spend some time holding before the Lord our missionaries. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for helping us all to persist in our following Jesus by the Holy Spirit's power. I lift up to you our next generation, our students who are in home schools as well as public and private institutions, our students at Enos Elementary, 
our students touched by Amigos in Cristo. May they persist in love for you when the world mocks faith. May they persist in trust in you when voices say you aren't believable. May they persist in courage, knowing your perfect love cast out fear. May they persist in seeking your face, understanding that even though not all of their faith journeys will look alike, your plan can still use each one in your kingdom. Help them to persist in taking time to listen to you when the world bombards them with so many distractions. Help them persist in showing your loving kindness when the world elevates unkind, self-centered words and deeds. Help us to all remember, no matter what age we are, that we are all students together at the feet of our perfect teacher, Jesus, in whose name we ask all this on behalf of the children we love. Amen. As we spend a minute together praying for the next generation, please choose at least one student's face to hold in mind, even if you don't know his or her name. Lord God, we rest on your promise to hear our prayer. We thank you and praise you this day for the sacrificial gift of your Son, revealing your great love for all of mankind. Thank you for our church here at Cherry Hills and for your provision that has made it possible. We see the evidence of your blessing in the lives of many throughout this fellowship and in this community. Your blessing and love, however, extends further than what we observe here. Your love and spirit has touched millions throughout the world that we sometimes forget to pray for. And often as we go about the affairs of our daily walk, we overlook the needs of those who are the fellow members of, of your church. Forgive us for our short-sightedness, and we pray that our vision, our concern, our compassion and prayers might reach all of those who belong to you, whether here or elsewhere in the world. Give us a burden for all of those in your church. We know that many are struggling, many are suffering, and possibly wondering if the struggle is really worth it. We together today want to pray that their faith might be strengthened, that they might be encouraged to persevere. As part of your worldwide family, we pray that you would make it clear what part we here at Cherry Hills might play in taking the message of your love to our brothers and sisters around the globe. Join us now as we pray together for God's church.
I hope you know that we pray for you often. We pray that uh, as we leave these doors, that all of us be able to be able to stand firm and to run the race that God has set before us. Now, I just want to say it would be a total tragedy if we left these doors and thought, okay, I did my thing, I prayed. The whole point is as we leave this room that we are reminded that prayer is the resource God has given us. So let's be people who pray. Let's be people who pray not just for ourselves, but for others that we might have the kind of persistent faith that will help us stand firm and win life, yeah? We'll have members of our prayer team down front. If you need to pray with or for somebody, we'd love to be available to you. For the rest of you, God bless you. We love you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.